Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would do just that, write your new best name of love upon our hearts in the hearing and applying of your word to our minds and our hearts in these next few minutes, we pray. Amen. Do please sit and turn, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 5, page uh, 1033. I, um, I was visiting someone uh, not long ago who was ill at home, and they were watching daytime television, which isn't something I normally see. Uh, and uh, as I walked into the room from the television, there came this uh, rather stern uh, voice commanding attention and asking this question, have you had an accident at work that wasn't your fault? Well, even in the depths of pastoral concern for the person I was visiting, I'm always one quite capable of noticing a mistake in grammar. And um, I thought, well, I think that's what they call a tautology, in that if it wasn't your fault, it's bound to be an accident. Or if it's an accident, it's not anybody's fault. It kind of goes with the notion of an accident. But of course, that's not what they want you to notice. What they want you to notice is, have you had an accident that might be someone else's fault? Uh, This week, uh, a report was published that said some of the uh, risky and sometimes criminal behavior indulged in uh, by young men is often accounted for by a a simple kind of biological truth. They're not going to live as long. Many come from a generation and a lifestyle where the actual health gap, the poverty gap, is such that uh, they've got 20 years less to live than someone in comfortable middle-class circumstances. They squeeze everything in. Live fast, die young. No doubt it can't be uh, long before someone stands up in a court and defends themselves with what will be by then a legitimate defense. It was my genes what made me do it. (laughs) Addictions are on the increase. And by that, I don't mean necessarily the number of people dealing with the addictions we tend to know about, like cigarettes or, or, or drink or drugs or whatever. What I mean is the number of things you can uh, be formally addicted to. So food, gambling, shopping, internet games. Wherever you look, what we see is a world in which the answer is, it's not my responsibility. The accident at work wasn't my fault. It was my genes what made me do it. Uh, uh, Whatever the, the, the addiction is, it's an addiction. It's not something that I take responsibility for. But contrast this where we're running away from the responsibility of me, my own self, with something else where we find the self indulged. Oreal, the uh, cosmetics uh, company, uh, was not having uh, success. They were losing sales when their shampoo adverts merely promised that your, sh- your hair would be glossier or shinier or have fewer split ends. But the moment they adopted the tagline, because I'm worth it, their sales shot up. At least when in the old uh, 
arrangement. Presumably, you wanted shinier, fuller, less split-ended hair. Um, uh, no, men, I have no idea what one of those is either. But um, uh, uh, Presumably, that was desirable because it made you desirable. There was something relational. It kind of made you look good for someone else. But actually, what matters is yourself. What pushes the product is because I'm worth it. And these ads tell us deep things about what it is that we want to hear about ourselves. It doesn't matter, of course, if they're inconsistent, because who cares about that? But now here comes the story of Levi, with its own deep structure that offers answers to all those issues that we have with the self. And I'm only going to look at those few verses, 27 through to 32, because I think there's enough there to, to focus on. Levi is at work minding his own business, And Jesus walks up and says, follow me. Levi leaves everything, throws a party at which Jesus, who's been in dispute earlier in the chapter with the Pharisees, says to them, listen, I've come not to uh, call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's as though there's, there's inverted commas around that righteous word. We'll come to that in a minute. The actual story could not be simpler. And Levi is a walking illustration of other things that Jesus said and did. He who wants to save his life must lose it. He leaves everything. The kingdom of God is like a merchant with a great pearl. When he finds it, he gets rid of everything else to obtain it. That's exactly what Levi does. And he starts, that's actually what the original uh, tense of the verb means, he starts to follow Jesus. And the alternative to what he has done is close at hand. The Pharisees, who reckon that they are righteous, that they've got it all sorted uh, by themselves. And Jesus says, look, I can't do anything with you. I can't do anything with those who think they're already righteous. I'm here, says Jesus, for those who know they aren't. And that, it seems to me, puts the very sharp question to us. The voices in our ears coming through our televisions have a very clear message. It's not your fault. Your parents, your society, your school, your broken relationships, your addictions, these things are the problem. Inside, deep inside, remember that you're worth it. You're good. Now we're in church. And even churches reinvent their own language and give it new meanings. Yes, we come to church and we can speak of sin, but it it can become just a mild social problem of our own lack of worth. Or it becomes a kind of technical problem. We don't really need to think about it to let it sink into our hearts because, well, we know Jesus has solved it. It's problem sorted. And that's why it's important every now and then in church to attend to the sheer clarity of the biblical world. You and I, those who gather here this morning, we are not the righteous. We are sinners. We are those who accept responsibility for being adrift of God's purposes. Deliberately so. Yes, of course we may have been influenced by our parents and our friends and our history and the world around us. 
we may have challenges that come from the genes that we've been handed out. But wisdom begins when we can look at all of it and say, however I got here, I take responsibility for where I go from here. I'm not good. I'm bad. I don't have to say that that's the way God made me. I don't have to beat my breast and pretend to be worse than I am. I simply have to face a fact. John Calvin called it the doctrine of total depravity, which sounds very scary. It's a good doctrine. Total depravity. It doesn't mean that every particle of you is bad. What it does mean is that there is no part of you that is untouched by a particle of depravity, of the desire to put yourself first. There's no part of me untouched by that particle. Even at my best, and we all know this, at my best, there's that little bit of me looking myself in the mirror going, this is my best. (laughs) There lurks in the best of me that twist of character centered on myself. It's not surprising. If a whole culture can become centered on the self, since self is where the problem comes from. It's true for me, and it's true for you, and indeed that clash between the Oriel advert saying we're worth it, and the accident advert saying it's not your fault, that inconsistency says everything we need to know about what goes on in my heart and yours. But quite understandably, someone at this point will normally say, hang on, you can't say that. You can't go to a world that is hurting with a message that says, it's your fault. It's pathological, it's warped, it's twisted, it's unhealthy. And of course, people do say exactly that, that organized religion is deeply unhelpful in today's society because it encourages a warped and twisted view of human nature, to which we can only say, no, it doesn't. It's a simple willingness to face reality. It's a willingness to stop the nonsense of measuring everything by the standard of me. Now, that's what's unhealthy. And accept that there is another by whom everything is mentioned and by that is measured. And by that measure, I fail, and so do you. It's near impossible for any preacher to convey in words the horror that God knows at our sin. It's not being overdramatic. And I don't mean some particular awfulness that you, one or some, one or a few of you committed last week. I just mean that sense that there is nothing in us. There is no part of us that God can look through and try to find and say, yes, this bit's okay. It's all affected. It's simply a clear-eyed statement of reality. And if you want to look at a narrative that denies the charge that comes against us, then let's look at the story of Levi. It shows what it feels like when sin is dealt with. This man gives up precisely the distorted, twisted view that would have been his as a tax collector. Tax collector was a role not not to which you were appointed, but for which you paid, because it gave you the right then to raise the taxes and such ever element more 
you, gave, you passed the taxes on, but your income came from what you could rake in. So it was, a, it was a license to print money. And the man gives up a distorted, twisted view of himself, which was common among uh, tax collectors who were hated. And he embraces the simple purity of following Jesus. This story, I suggest, breathes truth. I wonder how the food tasted to Levi that day, sharper, I suspect, deeper, more, more what it was meant to be. And deeper and more what he was meant to be is true for him. Someone who's paid by the city council was discussing a few days ago, someone from this church, the challenges faced by an estate in our city. And they said that the challenge is really one of low self-esteem among the women. And they could do with having their self-esteem raised. Art classes or such like. Now we have to be careful. Lowest self-esteem can be a terrible problem. Lots of us, if you're a typical part of the population, have got it. And perhaps art classes would help. And that council employee was quite rightly working within the frame of reference for which she's employed. But let's be clear that the answer is wrong. What they need is Jesus, in the same way that Levi did. Because consider what happened on that day. Jesus did not walk up to Levi and explain in three careful points exactly the ways in which Levi was a sinner. We take it within the story that Levi simply knew that. And like many people in that case, who simply know that already, that some gut instinct, that inconsistency of the world plays out in their own spirit, whether or not they can put a name to it. What Jesus offered wasn't an intelligent analysis of the problem. He simply offered the answer, follow me. And it's only in discussion with the Pharisees that he offers an analysis of what's going on and calling sinners to repentance. It's a calling. It's a summons. By definition, it's a summons to leave one life and enter upon another. And so we can take that story as an important tool to help us understand what our business is as followers of Jesus. So to present Jesus Christ and his calling that men and women and boys and girls appreciate his holiness, their own sinfulness, and turn to follow him. Now for us, because we're not actually Jesus, it's bound to be a little more clod-hopping than that. We can say, follow him. But we know that there are still going to be things to explain about sin and holiness and following and how he dealt with sin once for all so that it doesn't need to be a burden. And of course, that does tackle self-esteem. Once I take the first step of taking responsibility and saying, yes, I am a sinner and I repent, then oddly, and running against what we'd expect, that's the first steps of self-esteem because we've taken responsibility for recognizing a truth. We haven't said it's everyone else's fault. But that truth is not the truth Jesus expects us to stay in. That's one step, but he immediately offers it along with the other, follow me. Until Jesus gives us the answer of following him, there can only be vague 
uh, unhealthy, warped, twisted senses of being aware that one is adrift from God, but then also thinking that's not my fault. Jesus is precisely the answer to the running away from responsibility that's going on in our world. But he doesn't leave us with the problem analyzed. He leaves us with the problem solved in following him. So we can take it as an important tool, but we can take it more simply too. It would be wrong to walk away from this story this morning without pressing it home to anyone who finds themselves in the situation of Levi, to anyone who already knows that in some important way things aren't right, to anyone wriggling with the absurdities of it's not my fault, it's my fault. And I want you to hear loudly and clearly this morning the summons. Follow Jesus. Turn. Make him the one you follow. And you will find the right and true centre of your life for whom you were made and in whom all hope is found. Indeed, without whom our world has no hope. Talk to me. Talk to Colin and Margie who will be here to pray after our service. I, it's realistically, that won't, it won't be a, a first step for very many here. But look at the adverts and then look at the story of Levi in chapter 5 of Luke and tell me which one rings true and which life is worth following. Let's pray together now. Lord Jesus, we're sorry for the ways when we haven't followed you, for our neglect of the joy of being forgiven. And we ask that in the hearing of an old message that many of us have heard many times before, you'd remind us of who we are outside Christ and who we can be inside him. What we understand with our minds, we pray you would apply to our hearts, that we may turn every day to follow Christ. Amen.